What's up, everybody? This is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I have a repeat guest, uh, Default Friend. How's it going, DF? Do you go by your real name now on podcasts? I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I go by Catherine, but I don't know. Okay. People know me as DF. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, DF. We'll just keep it going since that's how you're like featured in the first episode. Maybe we'll drop it at some point. But I'm really excited to have you on because a few months ago, I think in March, you wrote something that was basically like Martin's theses about the backlash against sex positivity. Oh yeah. Oh my God. That was such a, I, I'm so surprised. That's my best performing Substack post. And I just like manically, it's like typo filled. I mean, I just, I look back on it. I'm like, man, you know, if people didn't know me, they'd be forgiven for thinking I was on drugs when I wrote this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's weird how sometimes those things will do the best, but it seems to you have the lathe of heaven. You thought it and now it exists. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners, like, first of all, what, how you understand sex positivity and that as a zeitgeist and what you see as the coming backlash to it, which you've been calling sex negativity. I think Mary Harrington has her own term from it, the sexual counter revolution or something. But I was wondering if you just walk us through that. Sure. So it's, it's a complicated thing to talk about because what's trending ideologically isn't always, you know, visible in people's like lived behaviors. And I don't make any claims about like mass behavioral changes, certainly like niche behavioral changes, but not, you know, not a bunch of people changing their, their actual lifestyle. Because I mean, if you look at sex positivity, it's not necessarily that every single person ever now has a body count of like 25 and above and is, you know, just randomly, you know, living a very sort of like 1979 bathhouse kind of lifestyle. I mean, like, that's obviously untrue. People are actually having less sex, but what does happen and is that like the media narrative that then sets the tone for most pop culture is, and then impacts the lifestyles of certain niches. Now that's that's what I'm tracking. So when I talk mm-hmm. about the sex positivity of, you know, it was a, it was really a subculture. I mean, it's been a subculture for a very long time, and it kind of like penetrated the penetrated the mainstream. I want to say around 2008, uh, maybe a little bit earlier. Like if you want to include like hookup culture, so let's let's say maybe like 2005 at the at the earliest of its mainstream expressions. It. it it's this very sort of like anything goes, you know, Dan Savage style, a good giving mm-hmm. game, consent based, you know, Teen Vogue writing articles about how, you know, variously not to catch feelings and how to, you know, maximize your, your pleasure during anal sex, mm-hmm. you know, Broad City putting a sex toy in the, the dishwasher, if I'm remembering that correctly, you know, girls, all of this, this sort of like no holds barred we're going to be very, very honest about sex and sort of simultaneously put the emphasis on consent, but also sort of portray women as like these hot messes who kind of are like the female expression of what we saw of like the, the Peter Pan boy. So this, I mean, I feel like it's it, maybe I'm not doing the most articulate job of explaining it, but I, I think people know what I'm talking about when I say, you, you know, I, the example I love to use is is WAP because of, of, of course, right? Like if, yeah. if, if, if that can be a mainstream hit, then, you know, anything is possible. <laughs> if, if a song with uh swipe your nose, baby, like a credit card 
can be a mainstream hit, then yeah, I think we're in sure. the, that's the era of sex positivity for sure. Exactly. And like the, the thing is, it's when I say sex positivity, it's also divorced from the more like philosophically coherent expressions of it. Like people who really live, you know, live that lifestyle and the, you know, whoever, whoever wrote like the ethical slut, it's like these people where it's a real lifestyle for them. Mm-hmm. It's also not quite that it's like some like diluted warped media version that has been dominating pop culture for a very long time. So when I then speak of a backlash, I don't mean, and I don't mean mass behavioral changes. I mean, the media narrative that will then inform pop culture and then inform like the it girls, the people who live at the fringes anyway, who then inform the behavior of the, basically the coastal elites, I think actually is what it boils down to. And then mm-hmm. trickles down to teenage subcultures. That's, so that's what I, that's what I'm talking about. And it's been, it's been very difficult to explain on Twitter where I've like limited um, amount of bandwidth to explain myself. Recently, the New York Times had this article that was like, is sex positivity out of fashion? And I, I retweeted it and I was like, well, first of all, they actually interviewed me for that article. So I knew it was coming. <laughs> People were like, oh, look, there goes default friend thinking she's impacting the discourse. Well, I actually did. So, <laughs> so just like when Neopets released their NFT, everyone owes you a fucking apology. <laughs> exactly. But so, I, you know, I retweeted and I was like, you know, shout out to all the women who've been sort of ringing the alarm bells. And what people interpret that, that as is I was like sort of taking credit for like, Andrea Dworkin's work, you know, and I was like, no, <laughs> Jesus, it, you know, I'm not, I don't have anything uh, to say. I don't have, I don't have a, a, a reactionary feminist to borrow Mary Harrington's words, mm-hmm. uh, thesis to put forward myself. All I'm doing is trend forecasting. And I think I did, I think I did an okay job. So now I feel like I finally got a chance to vindicate <laughs> what exactly I mean. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, so I like the way you sort of laid out the flow of influence there, because one of the things that I think people misunderstand is that like, this is going to change the lives of 20 and 30 year olds. That's not true. They've mostly been formed, right? What's interesting is how it skips that and goes from like coastal elite to everybody's favorite marketing demographic, teenagers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do, look, I do think that the influencer class, which I like very like reluctantly consider myself a, a, a part of as like a medium-sized Twitter personality. Mm-hmm. I do think, sure, it's it's an easy hack there is going to be leaning a little bit right, leaning a little bit sex critical, you know, being critical of sleeping around and all of these things that are now considered sort of out of fashion, institutional woefully millennial. I think, yeah, of course, we're going to see a bunch of like 35 year olds who are trying to keep their, their brand alive, do that. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Like the, the real heart of this is, well, what are teenagers doing and talking about and what's at the fringes of adolescence? You know, I, I see so many, so like so many teenagers, like love, like red scare. And I think that like really speaks to something. And it's like one of these things you're not allowed to like acknowledge because everybody hates Anna and Dasha. And it's like, I, you know, who gives a fuck what you think of their podcast? I happen to like it, but who, you know, who gives a fuck what you think about their podcast? They, 
that 14 year olds are walking around quoting and making image macros of Camille Paglia quotes. I mean, that didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's in a catchian. <laughs> right. Exactly. And well, and it speaks to something, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to Jack Murphy on Alex Kashuda's podcast. I don't really know much about him. I just like listening to her podcast, but I did find it striking that he brought up how he was very sexually active at a young age and his kids basically don't date. And that's like almost like whiplash for him. It's so surprising. You know, like there does seem to be something where like the teens, whatever they're up to, it isn't the sort of like wildly libidinal or permissive thing that I remember. Not that that was happening to me. Right. I just remember that like kind of in the air, I guess. Yeah. Especially by the time I arrived at college, that discourse was like starting to mature. Well, I I think the thing now is like, you know, I was just having a conversation about this today. Like, how do we have people who sincerely and it's not a bit and they're not trying to be controversial, you know, are lesbians who like men? Like, what is that about? And I think that's a similar dynamic to how we have this like oversaturated sexual culture, but people aren't having sex. It's because labels now are guided by affinities as opposed to experience. So like, Mm. you know, if when I was like 14 or whatever, someone said, I'm a lesbian. It's because like, they like, you know, they ate pussy and they liked it and they were a woman and whatever. They experienced some kind of same sex attraction. Now it's like, they like the aesthetics and the the vibe, the mood of lesbianism. And they, they don't, they don't, they aren't having enough experiences in the physical world to sort of like, you know, use labels to guide that. And people don't know people through their experiences, through their you know, mm-hmm. through their, how they're navigating the world. So it's not like a retroactive thing. It's like, you know, I, I have slept with, you know, I've slept with women and I am a woman and it makes sense for me to class myself in this way. It's a little bit more similar to like, you know, I'm a Hufflepuff. Obviously I have no like lived experience of being a Hufflepuff, right. but it, it, you know, I, I, it's, it's something innate within me and I, I want language to describe that. And that's, and that's the language I'm using. And I think the, and, you know, another difficult thing is when you're talking about this, I think it's, I think people are really quick to assume that it's negative and that you're, that you are dismissing or diminishing people who navigate the world in this way. And again, like, I don't have a moral judgment, but I think it's useful to, to point out that the way we use language and the way that we um, construct our identities has shifted in this way. You know, maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, who knows, but by just wholesale shutting down that conversation, we can't really learn about ourselves or, or what words mean. And, you know, it, it, it always boils down to, well, you're denying my existence or, or it becomes you know, existential very quickly. Yeah. When really it's just like, oh, maybe, maybe we need a new, a new word or a new language to describe people who live via experience versus people who live via affinity without judging it. Right, right. I think the bi-affinity thing is very, very interesting because it seems like, you know, I've been thinking about living in this like super hyper-mediated world. Create, it's, I just call it in my head, what I just call it is the era of atmosphere. 
where like everything's about the vibe. Like it's not surprising to me that Zoomers are like, well, it's a vibe. Like when they're describing something like it is almost as if there is this like diffusion of signs, symbols, iconography, or something like that, that are then like collected and put on display for somebody. And that that makes up a substantial portion of our lives now, right? Through the digital realm. And I feel like it's part of what's happening with the affinity groups has to do with that. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're totally right. And I, I mean, I, I, I think like people just sort of underappreciate how much things have changed. And I think like a lot of a lot of the difficulty we have with understanding social dynamics or, I mean, just, I mean, anything in the world is because we don't, we should be thinking of the digital as, you know, less as something separate and more, it's like a layer that's always in our, our life. It, mm-hmm. you know, it is, there is no, I, I, you've heard me say this a million times, but there is no touch grass because like you're touching grass while you're listening to Spotify. So you're not really touching grass, right. you know? Right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's sort of like, I remember this, this is like back in my powerlifting days, elite FTS was, is like, they make barbells and all sorts of stuff and sell that stuff, but they also had training logs on the website. So you could keep up with whoever was like what they were doing. And somebody hadn't updated a while and people were just like, oh my God, they're fucking slacking. And the person was just like, dude, like, just because I don't post it online, doesn't mean I'm not like fucking training at my gym like that's not my life but now that's sort of the expectation and like that's how our lives are geared like as you said it is more and more a fundamental component right like i mean i think about how it feels like i was thinking about this yesterday maybe i've told you about this the the lack of emptiness in a room because of being online That's really interesting. Right. Where it's like, I remember when I was a kid or like, even like I lived out in this boarding house in upstate New York that didn't have an internet connection for part of college. So like when I was out there, it felt like there were these big gaps of space between me and everything else. And now that you can just be online pretty much whenever at will, um, and you can be addressed by a stranger at will. And maybe that happens to you a lot or whatever, or you're engaging with people. There's always the possibility for that to happen, which means that there's always the possibility for there being this audience of potentially millions, even if it's an off chance of whatever you could be doing, even if you don't expect it. And to me, it seems to have like made the space around me feel like thicker or something. I know that's like out there, but like, that's how it feels. You know, it's, it's so fun. It's so funny. Cause I, I had a very similar like realization recently. I went out to, I was in Canada and I went out to the country with my boyfriend and I had gotten into a fight with my best friend and sort of like my reaction to this is like, you know, I'm having tension with this person. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not even going to take my phone and just, so I don't have, I can't like look back at the argument and like psychoanalyze it and disturb this, you know, like mm-hmm. nice romantic trip. And so I, I didn't take my phone. And like the whole time I had this like ambient anxiety and it Mm -hmm. wasn't that like something was going to happen with, you know, this like close friend of many, many years. 
it was actually like, what if when I'm logged off, there's like some ghost of me that I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't have control over. And like, I go viral on Twitter or something and I'm not there to like constantly like monitor it and at least be, you know, at least be prepared that I'm coming back to this. And I think that's part of it. Like, you, you know, it's, it, I mean, that's the thing of, I think that's part of why people name search. It's not only like, what are people saying about me? This is kind of fun in a perverse way. It's also like, what story is being created without my consent or knowledge where mm-hmm. I'm not even, I'm not even digitally there. It's like my ghost, my impression. And mm-hmm. that is an even scarier possibility, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes sense that there's almost this like phantom limb syndrome for my online self when I'm not near it. Right. And, you know, the experience of intimacy or interaction with somebody is still like biologically tactile, right? For the most part. So I think if we're thinking about like, how are these people engaging with me or whatever, or I could be engaging with people whenever it makes sense that you, if you leave your devices behind, you have sort of this phantom wind thing, or if there's always the temptation there and you're not engaging with it, that it feels like the space is crowded with ghosts. Like that's what feels thick, right? It's the potential audience, the potential, whatever, the discourse you're enmeshed in, like you are just low key within its atmosphere all of the time. And I think that that is part of what is shaping people's affinity based identity groups. I I think so too. Yeah. It's it's, I mean, there's so many things to it too. I mean, I also think like a lot of people have been conditioned to like, think about things in terms of vibe or in terms of energy or curation in a way that has always existed, but is now more, it's, it's more explicit. Like we have the language for it now and it's more precise too. Like you could, it was possible to like curate a vibe in meat space, but like not really in the way where, you know, people do it when creating mood boards and playlists Mm -hmm. that are so easily constructed. There's no constraints too. So I feel like that has to be part of it also. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, it's so funny, man. I follow this um, on Bandcamp. I follow this account called DuPage County Hardcore. And it's this guy who's lived in DuPage County, which is where I grew up in Illinois, who lived there, who's lived there his whole life. And he grew up during the nineties and the early two thousands. And he was just deep into the like local music scene. So he's been taking his huge collection and whatever anyone from that era will send him and uploading something almost once a day or at least once a week. And so there's just bands that never went anywhere. And when I listen to it, it feels like outsider art because it's so uncurated, right? Like nothing now could ever sound this way. I know that's maybe like a banal point because the times change, but the the way that works is in such a different way. Like you really get the feeling that this was only ever meant to be local music. This was never pretending or even adjacent to anything that could be on, like happen beyond maybe like the Tri-County area. 
right? Oh. It's, just, it's just like a level of social life that feels different. It's not that there aren't small groups online. It's that like sort of the eye of Sauron of whatever online is can always look upon whatever you're doing, right? There could always be something bigger there. I mean, I but I think just, so I agree with you. And I I find myself sort of like increasingly, you know, it's weird. I find that a lot of that art tends to go or, or music and things tends to go viral because people are not, aren't used to the amateurishness of it anymore. Mm-hmm. But I do think, and especially on like frog Twitter, there's like a sense of gatekeeping and it's, it, they're gatekeeping for all the usual reasons, a purity of ideas and mm-hmm. whatever, you know, not to get totally into frog Twitter stuff, but there's like a sense of like keeping stuff sort of like it isn't to make sure it's not meant for public consumption. And I actually saw a back quote today that I was like, actually, this is like really true. And like, you know, as much as I have my, my qualms with, with that, let me just pull it up. Cause I think it's like, I think it's really sharp. It was something like, I don't know if I'll be able to find it easily, but it, it was, it was something like there's a group of like parasites who like latch on to frog Twitter when really like all they've ever wanted is mainstream, mainstream success. But, you, you know, like they, they're trying to like create a liter- literary career off it or, or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that was like a really interesting point because it's like when people in those spheres are creating art or they're, they're in, you know, in some cases like creating literature, it is, it's like for the people, by the people in a way that is like, I think, you know, it's certainly like unheard of for a lot of normies, you know, even when it does exist in like normie society or like normie communities, it's always through like the lens of, you know, like that, like wine and sip or something. It's just like, it's, it's so, it's like commodified in a different way. Like as a hobby, it like ceases to be art. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, is that just another dimension of the affinity group thing? Do you think like that's how that ends up happening? I mean, obviously we'll never really get rid of like being an amateur and everything because amateurs are the largest group there is. Right. Somebody's always an amateur at something. But when we're taking a look at like dynamics within these niche communities, like how do you think that affinity versus experience group has different dynamics than like the experience group, let's say? Well, so like ex- experience really requires you to be living. And I think like the sad thing is, is that if, if, you boiled it down too much to experience, people would find that they don't really have much at all. You know, another really good example of this is the debate about uh, Latinx. Well, like mm. the the lived experience of like a Latino person who, you know, like let's say grew up in a diaspora community in South Florida, they learned Spanish in their home. Latin, Latin means something like it is a very important word to describe a set of experiences and to bat signal to other people with those same experiences, you know, and, and it, it requires, it requires like a lot of, of, of living, but someone who says Latinx, they had maybe a, a different experience that, you know, isn't as unique and they they're they're searching for for something to help shape out their, like the narrative of their life, and so they decide to they have they have the choice to learn Spanish in a classroom typically, or if they learned it at home, it wasn't really that much of a they choose to identify with that part of their heritage, and it's to it's to add meaning to their life as opposed to like 
you know, very like practically describe meaning that's already there. And I mean, that's why I think like Latinx, I don't necessarily have a problem with it, but it's like, we should, again, like we should recognize that they serve two different purposes. And it's not that these people have invalid experiences, but like, let's not pretend that it's, it's the same experience as someone who like, you know, immigrated here from Colombia at eight and, you know, had to use that word as a way to find other people who understood their cultural background. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I also think about this in terms of affinity group formation during experience is that I think that there's something about affinity groups that um, allows for post hoc mutability, which means that there are lower barriers to change, right? If your experience group, leaving that experience group has like obviously high social costs of loneliness with affinity groups, you can really like reinvent yourself and find yeah. other affiliate groups. And so what I mean by post hoc is let's say you have like an experience group element of your life that is very deep, but the affinity group has this ability to provide a filter of meaning that lets you reinterpret for yourself what your experience group life really meant. And you can repurpose it to fit into a new affinity group. So I can imagine the type of person that you're describing that grows up in South Florida, maybe the kid of Cuban refugees or something like that, sees themselves as Latin and then has a particular experience in college or online that introduces them to an affinity group that uses Latin X. And as people who have similar like lived experiences, let's say, but are doing a totally different affinity group response to that. And that person can then recollate their lived experience to fit the new contours of the affinity group. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, I, I think it also like works the opposite way where people sort of subconsciously will try to fit the affinity group or what they think that it should look like, which is again, why like, I think the conversation with trans people where you have trans women saying like, well, trans women don't have to look X, Y, and Z ways actually really does hold water if you look at it from this perspective, because it's like, well, yeah, like you, you probably do have people who are subconsciously trying to like fit themselves into like a predefined bucket. So, Mm -hmm. and of course that causes harm. It's just, I think it's just confusing because we don't, we don't have the language to to describe these different types of identities. And we certainly don't have the language to describe them without dismissing one or, you know, without acknowledging that like, this is, this is reality now. And it, you know, it it is what it is. And like, we're we're not gonna, I don't think we're going to remove, remove this. It's, this is, this is digital life and it's here. And unless we go, you know, Ted K, like we're not gonna, (laughs) it's, 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 yeah, we need to, we need to get used to it. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that this also relates to some of what's um, going on both with with the sex negativity backlash, right? Because you have an eye on how that is going to be a cura- curated as an affinity group as you go forward. You take great pains in that piece to actually point out. You're like, I'm not saying whether this is good or bad. I'm just telling you that it's coming. Yeah. You know, so there's going to be all sorts of like, I mean, I think LARPing is one way to put it, though often that's like an unfair term, um, right? It's more pejorative than it is illuminating. But I think 
what we have to admit, and this is what I take from your piece, to tell me if you agree with this or not, that there is now just a greater level of free play with identity that is just going to be a permanent feature of our lives. Completely. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I like the LARP, you know, label. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just call it role-playing because I think all the world, I mean, it's, it's increasingly not a LARP. It's a, te- we live in a text-based role-play. We mm-hmm. live in a, we, you know, we live in an MUD, like it just, that's. All, all roads lead back to Zork. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it all, I mean, everything functions the same way. If you look at like, even people who did text-based role plays on forums, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a one-for-one match. I mean, you pick your avatar, you know, your world is defined by what you say. That doesn't mean that like, you know, you're not uh, free from other people's judgment of your character, but you do have ultimate control over your, of, over your avatar, over your, well, yeah, you know, yeah, creating content. a personal brand is basically rolling your character stats. Yeah. And I think like, you know, what's, I, I think where a lot of tension comes from is people are like, well, I'm writing this story about myself. Why, why aren't you cooperating? But it's because like, you don't, you know, someone might write, you know, a character who they think is like really like deep and nuanced, but then the audience doesn't agree. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the tent that's, that's where a lot of tension comes from. So when, when people are like, oh, well, you're not this, it's like, oh, well, you know, I don't exist. Well, it's not that you don't exist. It's that you misjudged how people are going to perceive you. And, And of course this has always been true, but now it's like true in this like very explicit, like, like literally this is what's going on. Like we are all like writing us, like we are, actually writing a story it's not metaphorical at all right it seems like and the other thing is like the management of the story is now like a computer-based task that has like black box algorithms and all sorts of things that are like physical piece running on physical pieces of infrastructure that are burning through real world energy like that's as real as it gets it, yeah, I'm, 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 com- I'm completely, I'm completely with you. It's, it's going to be interesting when we get like deeper into like, you know, metaverse stuff. Although I guess we could, you know, you could argue that we're already there. <laughs> like what's, what else is going to change? It'll be interesting to see like how the generations work across a generationalism plays out across platforms right? Um, especially as concerns of the state get involved and like what relationship US citizens should have or not have with something like TikTok that still has most of its server farms in China, I believe, and how that's going to work. I mean, I think it's going to get way weirder before it gets clearer, right? There is no like dungeon master to adjudicate any of these role-playing character tensions. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's already, I don't know if it's decentralized, but you're right. There is no dungeon master and maybe that's, or, or moderator. Or, you know, mm-hmm. the moderator is maybe the platform, but but barely. They're like an absentee mod. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. So this brings me to the other thing that you've been doing, which is you've been diving deep into fandom studies and you have left me a few tantalizing breadcrumbs about what you've been finding. But the thing that you texted me, I think a few, a few days ago was like, academics who've been studying fandom have been basically saying that this has been coming or is already here for like decades. Yes. 
So um, I would love to hear you what, like, what is it that they've been predicting and like, what, what are they? So the one thing I find really compelling is there's been a couple of articles about text-based role plays that are from like the, well, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff. So the one, one big thing is the, the text-based role-playing thing and sort of how the internet's going to enable us to construct our identities and how it's no, it's gonna, it's no longer going to be that we step in and out of this, that it's like, a, you know, there's a pure escape, right? Like the, the curtain never closes on internet identity. Like it, it might have closed in the late seventies or, or early eighties. If you were, you know, like the game, the game doesn't end. There is, there is no dungeon master. Uh, Sherry Turkle wrote a lot about, she was fascinated by text-based role plays. The other thing I thought was like, absolutely like mind blowing. And I was like, wow, I can't believe that this is just like, people have just been talking about this and no one seems to care that fandom, fandom, advances technology. So it's like, you know, everyone says like porn advances tech, right? Like mm-hmm. they're, they, they push technological advances, but they are also early adopters. It's not that it's not porn. It's actually that porn users are part of the porn fandom. Yes. And they, yeah. and, but it's true of like Star Trek fans of sci-fi fans more generally. And what creates like a really good Tinder box, if you want to like explode something's popularity is you put fans on because they also do a lot of free labor. They catalog, they're like worker bees kind of, or, or ants maybe, um, you know, they, they'll fix things, they'll add features, they'll tell you which features aren't working. So they're like, they're a great ingredient. And then you also want journalists because Mm. journalists work parasitically with the fans. And the combination of the two creates successful communities. Um, and it's it's like, this is something that I, I feel like I kind of stumbled across with my Tumblr article for the American Mind, where basically, mm-hmm. if you haven't read that piece, the, the thesis is that- It'll um, be in the show notes, guys, by the way. The, you know, t- the reason Tumblr was as successful as it was, is it, it, was, it reached peak usage at a time where journalists were using it to like scrape stories. So the combination of journalists- and you know, people just being on it all the time is what disseminated into the mainstream. Same is true of Twitter. The reason I think that Twitter politics, in a sense, are real life is because journalists are always on Twitter, and they, for better or for worse, still control the conversation. Yeah, and heads this- of state post there. I think Trump was really like a big innovator in that. Not that no one in the government <laughs> had a Twitter account before him, but that like his direct use of it, like I think, really changed the whether or not Twitter is real life debate. Yeah. But, but this is like, this isn't like new information, right. Mm -hmm. That I, and it's, it's been like increasingly bothering me when I see people sort of like, they're just like, you know, stumbling in the dark for trying to explain like what's going on online. And I mean, the, the answer is like, well, people, there are internet historians and they've been writing for as long as there's been an internet, like since since the early 80s, really, like, you know, a consumer-driven internet. And they, like, again, like, guilty as charged. I, I did the same thing. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, it's great to have confirmation that I'm seeing something real. But we, this language has already been put into motion. And people are studying it. And the thing that really bothers me, I mean, this is sort of a tangent, is people dismiss academia because they think it's poisoned by wokeness. That actually isn't true. There, of mm-hmm. course, there are politics. Of course, there are, there's there's really obnoxious mm-hmm. etiquette and stuff, and there there are departments that have been completely, you know, demolished by all of these language wars and yeah. But the academy is not just the lit crit 
department, right? It, like exactly. And you know, I my my boyfriend is a mathematician, so I've seen. I mean, I've seen stuff in like math departments that are like are just like what the fuck. But but still, right? <laughs> like it doesn't mean even though they're like you know they they have like these arcane and useless debates about pronouns. It doesn't mean like the math that they're doing is totally useless. Like they're mm-hmm. still actually producing work. And I think that like for anyone who wants to be a culture commentator or a reporter or like, you know, trying to untangle the great awakening, like, like for the love of God, like media studies exists, you know, get over yourself. <laughs> like yeah. I had to do it. Everyone should do it. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, yeah, there's this weird aversion to doing, I don't want to say weird. There's an aversion to doing deep research, I think for sometimes very typical reasons that have not changed throughout time. It's like the people I used to meet when I was taking writing classes who said, I don't want to read too many other people's work because it'll take away the purity of my voice. And I was always just like, okay, like you're not serious. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about, (laughs) right? Like you have to read what other people are doing. Maybe not like all the time, but like, it's good to have authors that you like. That's like normal and part of cultivating taste here. So I think that that's part of what's going on is that if you do the deep research, you lose a certain sense of your own originality. That's happened to me plenty of times in my life, usually for the better. And I would say almost always for the better. But I also think that part of it is like, I feel like not doing the research is another type of gatekeeping, if that makes sense. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So it's like, if you decide you're going to go off the beaten path and have, and do deep research on what's actually going on here and write about it publicly, like, I wonder if people don't see it as opening a portal that lets like other people come in or other ideas come in when there is an agreed upon set of ideas that everybody is getting attention for debating in the way they're debating them. Oh, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's, you know, I think that's part of, I think there's a couple of reasons that people think sort of my like Tumblr thesis is stupid. And I, I, some of the, some of those reasons I appreciate. And I think, sure, I, you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm willing to hear alternative ideas. I think another reason that it gets hate is because for that to be true, then the, the opposite might be true. But I think like the third reason and the, 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 the least, the least good one is like, well, no, we're talking about wokeness in these terms. So like, you know, don't, don't do it. Don't do it in that style. That's not, we, we didn't, you know, that's not in the contract. And it's like, you know, I, I, I get plenty of attention and plenty of airtime, not complaining about that, but it's, it, but also like, I'm getting kind of like, can, you know, if we're going to be discussing this, if this is going to be the, the script, can we at least like, you know, look at what other people have done one, and then two, like be a little bit more creative with our thinking instead of just the same old, you know, the same old like bullshit that people have just been retreading over and over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think that there is, there are vested interests in keeping the way we think about these things in a particular vein that are conspiratorial. They just have to do with the convenience and advantages that people want to have when they're forwarding their ideas. They're less about the ideas themselves and more about the way that people envision their own victories in the discourse. Totally. Yeah. I think, I think people really don't want to entertain. I I will say like an exception of exception with this is like, you know, if it's so esoteric as to like, 
not even like be able to be like, you can't even really take it seriously. I think that is kind of a way to get like different ideas in, but then it becomes Mm -hmm. more about the personality who's shilling it than like the actual work, but that's a whole other conversation. I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, so like, there's never going to be no limits to discourse, right? Like that's just not the way that that works. But one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was I think a book you're reading now on emo fan. Oh yeah. And I wanted to know, like I want to know about that for all sorts of reasons. But you said that it was it was quite fantastic. I was like wondering what it is, who it's by, and if you could tell us what's been surprising or interesting about what you've been reading there. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not super far into it. I, I think the author's name is Judy Fatwala, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's basically the argument is that emo is was a very nebulous term that mm-hmm. ended up being defined by the the people who gravitated towards it. And a lot of our understanding of what's emo today is like retroactive. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. It, it was, it's kind of, it kind of, it's, it reminds me of like how we talk about hipsters. Like we kind of knew what it was at the time. It did have defined boundaries, but a lot of that was like driven by like what people were doing and what people were creating. And people were also engaging with as a fandom, as, a, as opposed to like, you know, what we might've recognized as a, a subculture, mm-hmm. you know? So there's, there's plenty of things that were like familiar about it. Like there's, there's such, of course, such a thing as like emo shows, but it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't as easy to parse when it was up and coming. And it's also, and, and another interesting thing is it's also like still like very alive. It's just that it's moment in the sun is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes part of what I yeah what what in my head I've been calling genre core, where the genre lives on after its apex, and I mean can obviously be slotted into marketing categories and and streamable categories. That's not to like dump on the music itself. I think that's just a reality, but it almost takes on this like folk music quality, where it's really about exploring the variations on a theme. And not that that's bad, but that is interesting that that is how those communities live on, is that the innovation curve just slows down because it has to. And then it becomes this, I don't want to say totally different thing, but whatever project it had while it was emerging and changing a lot um, and was fresh and like disrupting things, let's say, once that's over, the task of being involved is quite different than when it was emergent. Yeah. And I, I mean, with, with, with emo too, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of that, but also like sort of the way people are talking about it is, you know, very similar to the way people would talk about like, a, you know, a movie fandom, like there's mm. only one movie, right. But there's, you know, or like there's a book, you know, a book series that ended, but there's like infinite sort of like iterations of like how you could reinterpret existing material. Which I think is, you know, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's kind of at the heart of what Paul Scalis is saying, right? Like it's, it's that, you know, everything is sort of a dead medium and now, now we're all fans of it perpetually like reinterpreting and remixing it. But I think like the, I think, you know, where I disagree with him is like, is that a bad thing? I think that's its own form of creativity. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and I also don't know how new it is, but I, I mean, I, I see what I see what he means when he said, you know, 
when he says that it's it's not like anything we've seen before. Yeah, I mean, I'm very ambivalent about this because I've heard both of you out on it. Not, I mean, I've heard you. I don't talk to Paul. I don't know, <laughs> but I've definitely like read his arguments, and I think there's something a little bit compelling in both. And I, but I think there's like a distinction to be made that might be useful. So here, tell me what you think about this. The way it works in my head, and maybe we've talked about this before, is we live in a reference culture now which has to do with repeating actually very new franchises over and over again. I think um, somebody like really put it this way, like the first Star Wars had like Jung and like, I don't know, a Kurosawa and like all of this stuff in it. And then the new Star Wars just have Star Wars in it. And I would juxtapose that against or with perhaps tradition, which is I think a deeper fund of illusions that are integrated almost into a mode of being. Now, maybe reference culture will eventually become a tradition of its own or something like that. But that is how I distinguish like sort of maybe what Paul's complaint is, but also like what might be and what might be new about it with also retaining some of what's the same. No, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think that's that's a that's a good way to describe it. It's you know, there's something I I I see I see his exhaustion in it, but I think he, it's almost I, I, maybe it's just like a we're just going through like a fallow period too. I think we're totally going through a fallow period. Like, absolutely. My main thing, and I mean to write a longer thing about this, is that like modernity in general is slowing down. And like the task is no longer going to be like what's new, but like what can be taken care of and reworked to last longer, which is ultimately a conservative goal. I I would have to be transparent about, but you know, it is hard not to be exhausted by it because I live in Los Angeles (laughs) Um, and it is like so brutal here. It's just like when the Marvel shit comes out, this town is just like wallpapered with it. Like you can't get away unless you never leave your apartment. But even then, like the way ads work on the internet is they're all like zip code based now too. So I'm just getting like tons of shit about it all the time. Oh man, that sucks. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just everywhere. Like before something comes out, we know about it. Like before anybody just by dint of being here. Like what I can say feels like different about it is that the status of engagement has greatly changed because of things like fandom. But it's unclear to me what that really means, like good or bad, because I think that all of this feels very, very new as a cultural modality, this sort of intense plasticity of the self being like limbically merged with our like adjusted engagements online that are then coupled with advertising paraphernalia from things we like. I mean, I, there, there is this great, I've not to just constantly bring up bronze age pervert in every interview I do, but he's such a <laughs> fascinating, he's like fascinating and he hates me. So it's like hard for me to look away, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the jock and I'm relitigating my high school yeah. psychodramas anyway. But, but I, you know, one question I have is like, is it also that like media is changing in such a way where it's like, 
the great movies of our time are not movies at all, but they, they are internet personalities like Bath. Again, you know, again, to like evoke like Anna Katchian might be, might be one of them. But I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of them depending on your genre of engagement. They exist mm-hmm. on, on TikTok and they, they exist in the DIY space and they exist in cooking and, and wherever you look. I mean, some of these people have really brought it to an art form. And, you know, is it just that we're, it's like we're looking for a new opera in 1986. And it's like, sure, you know, like people are writing great operas, but it's just not the same, right? Maybe it's, right, right. you know. I think that's a good point. So I've talked on the podcast before about my theory of the three-star movie, which is that everything's a three-star movie now because that is just enough stim- stimulation to get you to commit to watching the entire thing while you look at other things on your computer or phone. And I also think that, that speaks to like, I also think that that's shifted like the content of movies. Like if you think about it, there is way more exposition in movies now than like stuff I watched from before because movies then were like this experience you were just like sitting through without any other screen or something like that in basically a sense step chamber with a bunch of other people, right? Like in the theater. Whereas like now that you have competing screens, I've noticed that like characters explain themselves in the situation explicitly at least once or twice in the movie. I haven't right? noticed that. And, and I think that's also because like people are like doing other things while it's playing in the background. Yeah. And it's like TVs, ha- TV movies have to be a lot more similar to TV shows, which are, were, you know, similar to theater, which is, you know, it used to be like the constraint was the budget, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or like what you physically had. And now the constraint is your attention. And I think that was, that was already true of TV where it's like TV shows are actually designed for you to be like walking around the house and doing other things. And like, mm-hmm. you should be able to follow a TV show only by listening to it. And the difference between a TV show and a movie was even like a or made for TV movie or like a long, you know, a long TV show is that a movie should be mostly visual and like there should be, you should be able to have an interesting movie with no dialogue. You know, of course that's not always the, the case, but like, I think maybe it's shifting that everything's like sort of like becoming televisionized. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Well, and I'd also say this, that if we take that and put it alongside the things that we're seeing, you know, like maybe the great movies of our day are these online personalities, you know, or at least like the culture that we create online of which some of these movies are a part or, 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 you know, other, other media as well that what we're seeing is really like simultaneity and ongoingness are more important than structure and wholeness. Yeah, I I definitely think like, so like immersion to like being able to put, like being able to adopt the qualities of and live Mm -hmm. in and somehow like play with it in this way as opposed to like a structured plot that's like constantly moving. You know, I think, and I think we saw this a little bit with alt lit, you know, it's, mm. it's like alt lit is very, it's, it, it's very emotional, but it's also like you're the, the, what's disarming about it is like, it's simultaneously kind of monotone, but you're also, you're also there. Like, it's like, Oh, you're in the G chat. You you hear the, the the pings of the instant message, but it's not really a conflict ridden story. You're kind of it's kind of like you're looking. You're really looking into someone's life, and I think more and more it's like 
who gives you the best immersive experience and the most tools to play with on your own time. And which mm-hmm. is again, like why I'm constantly bringing up that because he's done such a great job of this. Like he, the reason he has so many copycats is because he, he gave everyone all these tools an aesthetic to remix on your own. I mean, he's like really like the iconic example of like, what does this new like transmedia culture look like? And it looks like different iterations of that. I think that's absolutely true. You know, I mean, obviously I learned from my new thing is nuclear barbarians, right? Like it obviously taps into that well of references in its own way. Um, You know, it's funny. I was reading Joan Didion's Play It As It Lays. I had never read it before. I'm a huge fan of hers. And I was like, I still haven't read this book. So over the past, like couple weeks or or however when i had time i was i was reading from it and a lot of what that book is about is la's movie industry you know didion and her husband used to punch up scripts like for a star is born and stuff like that that's how they made a lot of their money so she knew the industry well and she spent a lot of time in la and it's really about this actress who is basically losing her mind her social groups are dissolving and she is basically dropping out of life. And she's incredibly lonely in this isolated way where the world starts to really disconnect from itself. And LA is a great place for that to play out because LA feels like a city disconnected from itself. It is the largest open air shopping mall in the world. What felt different while I was reading this is the question I had to ask myself is, is that type of loneliness really possible anymore? Or are we doing dealing with new versions of old feelings? I think, I mean, I think yes and no. I think the idea of new, new versions of old feelings is, I mean, that's a, that's a great way of articulating what's going on. I, th- I think you're, you're, you're really onto something there. Yeah, because I don't want to say like, oh, God, it's so unprecedented. Like, no one has ever felt this way in the history of humanity. That always seems like presentist, like hubris to me. It's like, well, you know, I wasn't there back then, so I can't really say. Um, But I imagine people were still like sad (laughs) and excited and stuff. It was just different and about different things, you know. And in that way, it does really feel like we've moved out of even the early stages of postmodernism. Right. It's a very postmodern book, play it as it lays. And instead, something else seems to be happening. Yeah, no, I, th- I, th- I think you're right. I, I, I th- we're not, we're, we're not going to understand what's going on until we're confused by the next thing. I mean, maybe that's how it always is. <laughs> right? Yeah, like- yeah, yeah. The owl of Minerva flies at night. Yep, that's true. Well, this has been really great, DF. Thank you for coming on. I really wanted to pick your brain about this stuff. And I'm, Glad that you made the time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. This was great. All right. Well, everybody, we will see you next week. Stay safe out there.